standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. We are currently in the middle of Baby Loss Awareness Week and I don't know what would prove the need for Baby Loss Awareness Week more than the recent horrific response by what seemed like a a large section of the world to Chrissy Teigen. This interview that I've got coming up with the Baby Loss Counselling Charity Petals, I spoke to its CEO, Karen Burgess, and also to one of the bereaved mothers who has used the service, Leah Shimada. We actually recorded that before the Chrissy Teigen story. I do know that Petals do have thoughts on it. And if you are interested in knowing more about their response to that, you will be able to find it on their Twitter account, which is at Petals Charity. Obviously, not all of us responded to Chrissy Teigen in the same manner. But it is true that for a lot of us, well-meaning though we are, what you say to a parent in this situation is is beyond us and People quite often say stupid things, thoughtless things, just for the want of something to say. And so we talked about that. We talked about the services that Petals offer. Leah tells us about the experience of losing a child soon after birth. And for that reason, I'm going to say that if you know someone in this situation, they may or may not want to listen to this. But what you certainly can say to them is that they can get in touch with Petals. Uh, They have a website, petalscharity.org, or they have a free phone number, 03006880068. There is information in the podcast that will be helpful for them. It may be too soon for them to listen to it, so Petals is certainly the place to go. Until next week. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by the magic of Zoom by Karen Burgess from the charity Petals and Leah Shimada, who is a client of Petals. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having us. Karen, perhaps we could start with you. Can you tell me how Petals came into being and what services it is that you offer? I've been a counsellor, psychotherapist since, well, I think the year 2000 I qualified. And over those years, I've worked in many, many different settings and had many different roles, some within the NHS, some outside of the NHS. And then in 2009, I was given the opportunity to go and work in a maternity hospital to develop a counselling service for the women and the couples who had the sort of the negative experience of maternity. So those who experienced pregnancy loss, those who um, may make decisions to end their pregnancy because for medical reasons, or or those who suffered the devastation of of stillbirth or neonatal loss when the baby dies, you know, hours or a few days after it's been, been born. That felt like a real privilege to me to have that opportunity as a counsellor. But I think I I could never have anticipated what it was I was really walking into. Being a mother, I have two boys who are now in their their mid-20s. But I was working in the hospital where they were born in Addenbrooke's um, in Cambridge. And I'd had the, the, the experience that most women have going there. I'd had trouble free pregnancies and healthy deliveries. 
But to go there and to realise that there was this whole other side to maternity services, sort of at the other end of the corridor, there are the rooms where the babies are born who aren't alive, and where the parents go who have concerns or have already been told that there's going to be a problem with their pregnancy um, and then that they have to deliver their baby and their baby's not alive. I, I had no idea of that. It was a shock. It was a challenge. It was something that I just felt was, you know, almost like my calling because very quickly I realised that the intervention that I could make, the support that I could give these parents, emotional support that I could provide at the time and then after, after they'd left hospital without their babies and, you know, walked back into their shattered lives, that support was invaluable. And so I was able to deliver that service at Addenbrooke successfully for about two years. And then at that point, it was a typical kind of NHS scenario, really, change in management, change in funding streams. And I was told that my role would no longer be available, that there was no money for it, the money needed to be put into midwifery. And so therefore, the service needed to end and my job needed to end. That was quite devastating for me on many levels. But the main devastation for me really was to walk away from this work, because I felt like I'd found something. I found something that was really, really needed within health and, and certainly in maternity care. I knew that there wasn't other services like this out there. I knew that most hospitals just didn't provide any sort of emotional care for these parents. And so I thought, well, I can't just walk away from this. I can't let this go because uh, it almost felt like my duty to find a way of continuing to deliver this work. And cutting a long story short, really, I decided to set up a charity because that seemed to be the most feasible way of doing this, to be able to get money from other charities or from trust funds or donors and supporters and ensure that the service could be delivered free at the point of, of need and the service also could be sort of scalable across NHS networks and across the country so that every parent would have access to a counselling service like this when they really needed it. Leah, can I ask you what circumstances led you to get into contact with Petals? My first child, Rowan, was born three years ago. It was July 2017. It was a perfectly normal pregnancy. There was nothing to signify that anything out of the ordinary would happen. We were ticking along quite happily. And then uh, when I was 26 and a half weeks pregnant, so that's um, viable, it's, it's past the date of viability, although premature, I was attending a conference on the other side of London and went into labor on the second day of that conference. Because it had been an otherwise normal pregnancy, I didn't think to raise an alarm, even though in hindsight, I had been um, having contractions all morning. By the time I realized something terrible was happening, it was too late. Rowan was born in the uh, in the hall of residence where I was staying for that conference. He was partially delivered while I was waiting for the first of three ambulances to arrive, and it took the it took the crew of the second ambulance to deliver him fully. So it was a really terrifying experience. He was born alive. Officially, he lived for 39 minutes. By the time I made it to the hospital. And my husband, who had also come down at great haste from across London to meet me there, he had been declared dead. So we were taken directly to the room that Karen was telling you about. 
the special room in the maternity wing for bereaved families. And it was there that Jonathan and I were introduced to Rowan. He still looked very much alive at that point. The midwives uh, wrapped him in a blanket that someone had donated. They brought him out to us. At that point, we hadn't known if we were expecting a boy or a girl. We'd chosen not to find out at the last scan. So um, it was just a lot of information to receive Mm -hmm. in one go. But we were very grateful that there was that room um, that was separate from the rest of the maternity wing. We were grateful that we did have midwives who were experienced in bereavement walking alongside us. And we were very grateful to have the gift of time with with Rowan. He was born... I think he was born uh, mid-afternoon, probably close to 5 p.m. by the time Jonathan and I uh, were both at the hospital. And we were able to spend the night in that room with Rowan in a special cot next to us. I was very conscious that it was all the time that we would have together as a family. It's very much a blur, really, that those, those hours. But what I do remember was we had these hours with our child. I, I don't think either of us slept at all that night. And in, in some ways, I didn't want to sleep because every moment I was asleep was a minute that I wasn't actually um, awake and with my child. And we we said goodbye to Rowan early early the next afternoon. You called the helpline for petals for the counselling service. I, I didn't actually. We it was it was a bit of a fluke because my husband and I live in one part of London and had been booked in through one hospital mm. trust. I gave birth to Rowan in another part of London. We were taken to the nearest hospital, which was in a third borough of London. My file basically got lost in, an, in a black hole. Oh, <laughs> it was floating somewhere around the NHS. So the following week, um, this was terrible timing, but I, I, apparently it does happen. I came down with a terrible infection. I thought it was mastitis because what happens when you deliver any baby is, is your milk comes in. Mm. But I wasn't nursing, so I just assumed it was mastitis. It was actually uh, far worse. It was um, a piece of placenta that hadn't been evacuated properly that was uh, becoming infected. So I had to go into yet another hospital, and that hospital happened to have a link with petals. So even though it was a terrible experience coming down with a really serious infection a week after losing your your child, it did lead me eventually to to Petals. The obstetrician at that hospital who performed the the procedure to remove the placenta was aware that Karen was operating the service out of the hospital and referred me directly to her. Petals has done a survey recently and 20% of the people who responded to it are not couples who have lost a child but were friends and family mm-hmm. of couples who were looking for advice I know some friends who've lost babies in various stages of their pregnancy and I know that I have always struggled to say something appropriate so I wondered if you could talk us through both of you from your experience what's a useful thing to do and to say and what's not a useful thing to do and to say to somebody in this circumstance? I would say first off that the range of response we experienced really was was a range from remarkably thoughtful to absolutely thoughtless <laughs> and um, and people's responses could fall at, at any point in that spectrum. The people who were, were most helpful were the people who as the weeks and months ticked on, gave us space to talk about Rowan. 
they were the ones who didn't try to airbrush what had happened, who didn't try to pretend that it would all be better. They were the ones who let us know that they too had lost someone important. They too had lost a human being. So I think in the long run, the people who have really been the sustaining friendships and relationships are the people who acknowledge that they too lost someone that day. And that our grief is also their grief. In terms of what not to say, Please don't tell me about your miscarriage stories. You would not believe the number of people who have a story about a a cousin's aunt's stepmother who had a miscarriage and then went on to deliver three healthy babies. For some reason, it's it's always three. That's the magic number. (laughs) But for one thing, Rowan was not a miscarriage. And and I think miscarriage is heartbreaking. I've also experienced that at an earlier stage. But Rowan was a live birth. He lived for 39 minutes. He was a human being. and, And he was... He was the person who made me a mother. So the circumstances in which I lost Rowan were very, very different from, from a miscarriage. I had to develop some, some robust ways to respond to that um, because I, I, I'm aware that people were trying to do their best. They were trying to relate from their own experience. But when you're grieving a child that you've lost, Rowan was, was a neonatal death. The last thing you want is to be told about someone's happy ever after miscarriage stories. I have a friend, they had a child that was born and lived only for a day, which at the time they didn't know why. It, it took them obviously a while to find out what had, had, had gone wrong. And he said it was amazing the number of people that said, still you can try again. Mm. As if... You know, as if it was like getting a new pet or something, as if they hadn't just experienced a terrible trauma. Well, you can try again. I was staggered by that. I mean, I don't think I've ever said anything that inappropriate. I think all I've ever just said is, I don't know what to say, which is, yeah, at least true. I think that's a perfectly valid thing to say. I, I, I would much rather have someone say, I don't, I don't know what to say than to trot out a miscarriage story. Yeah. Sorry, Karen, you were about to say something. Sorry. Yeah, I was, gonna, I was just going to say the, the same, really. This comes up constantly in our work with parents who've experienced a loss, that the inappropriate things that are said to them and the insensitivity that they experience. And I think... There's two things that go on there, I think. Firstly, for the parent, they immediately feel like they've been thrown out of, of, you know, the best nightclub or the best party in the world because becoming a parent is is all about that. It's all about joining this whole part of society that is is about celebrating something, celebrating life. And when when the child is lost, I think there's this sense of being expelled from something and feeling incredibly isolated and alone and so I think any bereaved parent is is kind of on their guard anyway for for, for the inappropriate comment they, they they're really nervous about anything that might slightly reinforce that feeling that they you know they didn't belong somewhere so there's that side of it but then from you know looking at it from the other perspective I think people around brief families are as Leah says equally grieving but don't often know how to express that you know that they're almost feeling that they're not entitled to feel those feelings because it hasn't happened to them and they can't bear to imagine what it is like for the mother and the father who have experienced it and so somehow you know that can go horribly wrong and the words that they use to express their feelings um, and the sentiment just come out completely wrong and end up doing doing the opposite. 
it's, it's a really, really difficult one, I think, really difficult one to na- navigate. I mean, we're constantly being asked, what should you say to a brief parent? What is the right way to, to handle that? And what I always say is to think of it in this way, that you need to be able to walk towards it rather than walk away from it. That's what that parent wants. They want you to come towards them and say, look, this matters. I care. How, how can I help you? What can, what can I do for you? How, what, how can we work together with this? Because that's what we do as counsellors. That's exactly what we're offering them, a space that says, come, come on in, come, come in and let's talk about it and, and help me to understand where you are, what you're feeling, and let's work this out together. Something that Karen said to me uh, really early on in, in one of our first sessions was that every significant relationship in my life would be transformed by this experience. And she was right. Every single significant relationship, for better or for worse, was absolutely transformed by Rowan's life and death. The fault line for that was whether people were willing to walk toward us or not. I don't know if it's statistically true, but I know it's certainly a line that's trotted out that very few relationships survive the death of a child. Is what you are offering, does it look a little bit like marriage guidance counselling in some ways, Karen? It's <laughs> a good question. I think it probably does, actually. <laughs> it's the, I think the statistics are, the research shows us that around 40% of, of relationships break down after the loss of a child. So it's significant. And, and I can completely understand why. Because the reality is that we, we all grieve differently. And when something matters that much... Yeah, when it's when it's your child, then it's inevitable that, you know, to some degree, as a couple, you're going to head off in separate directions. The key is to keep coming back together again, to keep coming back and, and, and talking to, to each other about actually what you're experiencing and how you're experiencing it and being able, being open enough to hear that and to be with that as well as be with your own grief. And we'd spend a lot of time in our counselling sessions talking about that which is why it's so important that couples can come together in, in, into counselling if they possibly can. Now, for some, they, they can't do that. It's just it doesn't feel right. For others, you know, which is often the case, is one wants to come and the other doesn't want to come. Usually the woman wants to come and, and, and the man doesn't want to come. Or the man comes along just to support the wife and doesn't really want to engage in the therapy as such. But, yeah, it is... Uh, I would say probably you know, 40, 50 percent of the work is on the relationship as much as anything else. Jonathan and I were quite, I think, quite rare in that from the very beginning, we, we both chose to come and we chose to make every one of those sessions a joint session. And that was, I think, out of a recognition that um, Jonathan had also become a parent on the day that Rowan was born. And he, too, was carrying a loss. And the way that we had experienced Rowan's birth and death obviously looked very different. But I think we knew very early on that it would be important for us to have a space where we could talk about our relationship as we moved through um, through what it meant to live with a dead child. Obviously, grief never goes away. But there are triggers. For example, I have found being in lockdown, I've thought more about my dad dying, which happened three years ago during lockdown than I did when he actually died. I'm going to assume for you, I know assuming is a terrible thing to do, that there were triggers for you, Leah, around other issues of pregnancy. You you have another child. 
I do. I, I do. Brecken is now nearly 18 months old. Oh, congratulations. How was being pregnant a second time, knowing what you learned the first time? Was that very difficult? Were people different around you than they were the first mm-hmm. time? I would say pregnancy after, um, after an infant death is a very fraught process. But it was a difficult pregnancy physically. I was throwing up pretty much every day until the day he arrived. The, the brilliant thing about pedals is that we were given an, another set of sessions to carry us through Brecken's pregnancy. And that really was a lifeline because, um, as, as you say, people are different with you when you're pregnant. I think a lot of people have this sense of relief. Oh, just, once this new baby's born, it will all be fine. Everything will go away. And again, those relationships, the fault line is, are, are you going to walk toward us um, in this lifelong grief or are you going to take the easy route? After Brecken was born was a really difficult time. I, I spent the first few days in tears because I, I suddenly understood, finally, completely understood what it was that I had lost with Rowan. Yeah. That, that loss finally had three dimensions. I understood exactly what I would have experienced had he lived in those early days. And it was a terrible grief. It was a really utterly terrible grief because on the one hand, I wanted to be so joyful for Brecken. And I was. And alongside that, I was just devastated all over again by what I had lost. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to say that as a mother, losing your child is sort of the last taboo. But I don't even know if taboo is the right word because that makes it sound like it is a bad thing. But there is a kind of politics of what went wrong. Who is to blame? Is there a blame? Where do you place it? That, I presume, is very tricky to navigate as well, the way not just individuals deal with you, but perhaps how society deals with you. Is that something you've had to fight against? Yes, I think a lot of the work that I did with Karen, especially in the initial sessions, was coming to terms with the decisions that I made on on the day that Rowan was born and died. Um, Why I didn't call for an ambulance earlier, why I didn't clock that actually my body was in deep distress. The fact that I walked half a mile having full-on contractions to get from one point to another before collapsing and, and waiting for the ambulance to come. These were all decisions that in hindsight sound completely absurd, but they were the ones that for for whatever reason I made that day. And I will have to live with those decisions for the rest of my life. So I think a lot of what Karen and I were working on together was about um, understanding um, understanding why I, I did certain things that day which may or may not have led to a different outcome. Uh, but I think it's also about being being kind to myself, uh, being gentle with myself. Because mm. God knows you get enough pressure from society after you lose a child. The last thing you need is to pile on to yourself on top of that. Yeah. Karen, can I ask, do you feel like institutionally, all, all the professionals that women need to deal with during pregnancy, do you think this is... This is a conversation that sort of needs dragging into the light a bit more about what life is like for women who, like you say, haven't had the experience that most women have through pregnancy. I absolutely do feel that. And, I, you know, that that is part of Petal's mission is it's not just to deliver a service, but to get people talking about, you know, why this is needed and, and also the psychological impact of baby loss on on women particularly. I think it it really, really does need kind of opening up because 
what's traditionally happened here is that there's this kind of like a cloak of shame that hangs around this work. And it's, it's shame on every part, I think. What I see, having worked quite closely with um, the clinicians in the field, is that they feel the shame as much as anything. Their job is to bring live babies into mm. the world, not dead babies. And so when these things go wrong, and, you know, it is usually, there's usually some... Well, no, not always. I mean, sometimes there'll be a scan and they just realise the baby's died. There's nothing that can be done about that. But but other times there will be some kind of emergency around the, the delivery of the baby. And they do everything they possibly can to, to try and ensure that that baby lives. And, you know, and obviously sometimes that doesn't happen. The loss of a baby, particularly a very traumatic incident, you know, within the delivery unit has an impact on all the staff it really does for days you can you can feel this sort of heaviness with it within the place and so yeah for those health professionals they can't dwell on that too long they've got to move on because there's going to be the next woman the next woman coming through the door and so it they, they just have to find a way of coping with it and so what happens is they they don't really they don't really deal with it they mm-hmm. don't think about actually what this means for them and for for the the parents and the families that they're working with for the parents time after time after time we hear the women in our counseling sessions particularly the early ones just blaming themselves that sometimes feels like that's all they can do is blame themselves because you know as as i've had said to me many times by women it was my job to bring Mm. this baby safely into the world and I failed it can only be my fault so whatever anyone tells or whatever reports are given to them post-mortem results anything that says that isn't true they will still default to that 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 place because that's the only way they can make any sense of it so a big part of our work is really really picking that apart with the woman with the couple so that they can actually recognize that that is a default position and that's not actually the truth and if they settle with that then they're going to be carrying something really really toxic for the rest of their lives and so we work you know we we work with that but it would help so much if society generally could could be more open to this discussion could could talk about it could face the reality that not every baby that is conceived is going to be born alive and healthy and this is the reality and we we, you know we, we need to talk about that and we need to be able to face that the other thing that I feel very strongly about is antenatal the antenatal support and care that 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 is provided by health professionals they don't really talk about this in 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 that you know they talk about lots of other things that can go wrong in pregnancy and tell women you know to be careful about what they eat and what they drink and not smoke and all of those things but nobody ever really says well you know there's a one in 200 chance that your baby could be stillborn and that you need you know you need to be checking the movements of your baby particularly in the latter stages of pregnancy because if your baby isn't moving it might have died you know, it's, it's, it's a harsh thing to say, but that is the reality. Yeah. We need to just open up this discussion and be more open and honest with it. And then I think women would not be so traumatised by these, these things and would, would be able to kind of look after themselves better, probably. How many 
people have you actually dealt with? How does the setup work? If people are listening to this and they want to get in touch with you, what's going to happen to them when they pick up the phone to Petals? Well, it's changing all the time, actually, since, (laughs) you see, since uh, lockdown, we've been able to sort of open our doors much more widely. Up until lockdown, all of our work was delivered face to face, in person counselling. And and so therefore, we were kind of restricted a little bit by the the hospitals that we could work with. We were in eight hospitals, mainly across the the east and southeast, a couple of hospitals in London. Since lockdown, we had to stop all face to face work and we've taken it all onto Zoom. Which means we can see people from anywhere in the country now, which is incredible. There is a restriction on that, of course, because you know, at the moment we don't have enough counsellors for that and we certainly don't have enough funding for that. Both of those things are, well, they're not insurmountable. Getting the money is pretty tough, to be mm. honest, but, <laughs> but we can do that. And so that, that's very much our intention is you know, to, to expand, expand the service across the country certainly via zoom um, and you know as we're able to get back into the face-to-face work we, we, we will do that too so for anyone who experiences pregnancy loss they can pick up the phone it's no 300 number or they can go on our website and it's, it's very very clear how to email us there's a fo- simple little form to fill in to say what's happened to you and then we pick it up from there so if if we can see see that that inquiry then we will if we can't then we will look to signpost to other services other services won't probably be quite the same offering as we have but at least there'll be some support has lockdown caused a a spike for you because there was me saying that it made me think about Mm. my grief that I hadn't thought about for a while has that flagged something in people perhaps the isolation that that's caused people to come back to you Yeah, there is a little bit of that. But I actually think that the volume of referrals and inquiries has increased more because I think the whole experience has changed during lockdown. So it's actually become a more traumatic experience for for, Mm -hmm. for women. You know, they're having to deliver their babies on their own, um, you know, sometimes. They're certainly getting, you know, if they're going for a scan and told that their baby has died, you know, they're usually in that scan on their own. Yeah just awful and then just dealing with staff with in full ppe um who aren't able to give them a hug you know the the whole thing has been really difficult funerals have been difficult to arrange post-mortem results have been delayed how much time they're able to have with the baby as leah said having that night um, with rowan was so important but you know during lockdown they've needed to take the babies quite quickly um to to the mortuary basically Um, and so parents have been deprived of that time and all of the memory making things that are done in that time so it's for those reasons that our inquiries have have increased and we have yet to find out the statistics about whether the rates of of loss rates of stillbirth and um, late loss have increased during lockdown i suspect they they have oh that's a worry isn't it it is, it is, because, you know, the parent, women were re- have been reluctant to go into hospital, and so they would hang on. Yeah. I, I know a, a ridiculous... I mean, I'm 46 now. I thought I was done with my friends having babies. I know a ridiculous amount of women that have been pregnant during lockdown, lockdown. Um, just by some crazy coincidence, suddenly all yeah. my friends who were 40 decided that, yeah, actually, we are. Or suddenly the IVF worked or something. 
So they've yeah. all been pregnant during it and they've had to do, yeah, a lot of it by themselves. And as first time mm. mothers, that's been hard. Like, at least mm. three of my, actually four of them are first time mothers. So they haven't even really got a frame of reference of, well, this is what they said to me last time. So maybe that's what I sure. should do this time. Leah, can, can I ask you, I mean, all people's experiences and individual circumstances are going to be different. But could I ask you, if you could say something to another woman who was in the experience that you were in that you think might help get her through the next few months, what what that might be? Um, I think I think I'd want to say um, exactly what Karen said to me, which is that every significant relationship will be transformed. The ones that will walk with you past the funeral, past the first anniversary, those people who are willing to um, grapple with you about what it means to live with the loss of an infant for the rest of your life. Those are the friendships and the relationships that will flourish. So that yeah. even even though um, even though it seems that everything changes and that the people around you change, I, I, I experienced a lot of um, disappointment and, and betrayal in the people that I thought were, were close to me. And a lot of what Karen was working with me was helping me to understand that some people just have less capacity than others for, for walking alongside grief. And that, that too is a loss. That's another form of loss on top of everything yeah. else that you've, yeah. you're also navigating every significant relationship in your life. But for every relationship that didn't flourish, others did. So I think it's being open to the possibility that there are new people who might be stepping forward and, and ready to walk with you. The other thing I'd want to say is I say thank you to Rowan every single day for what he has given me. And I think it's really easy for people on the outside to think of losing a, a child as nothing but tragedy. And, and it is. I, I don't want to shy away from that. But Rowan has given me new insight. He's given me empathy. He's really made me understand the value of kindness, um, especially kindnesses that are really small. But if someone is just trying to make it through each day in the aftermath of a terrible bereavement, those kindnesses really matter. So I, it's made me very conscious of how I could pay that forward for the kindness that I did experience, usually from people who had no idea what I was going through. But it made me think, actually, as a society, I think, as Karen said, if we had more awareness that a lot of people might be experiencing this type of grief, maybe we could collectively become kinder. And that would that would be a huge help when you're try, just trying to trawl through each day, um, having lost a baby. Rowan also led me to start the Death Cafe program uh, through the cemetery where he's buried. One of my biggest pieces of learning was that there are very few places where you can talk with other members of the public about the experience of death. After Rowan died, I, I, want, I, I wanted to talk about him as a person, but I also wanted spaces where I could talk about the experience of death. Losing, yeah. losing an infant really brought me up very close to the physicality of it, especially spending um, that night with his body. Uh, and, and watching it change over the hours. Um, I, I wanted a chance to, to say, this is what it was like. Uh, this was the physical experience of it. This was the bureaucratic and administrative experience, all the paperwork we had to fill out, all of the trips to the council offices. Uh, it's just it's just a nightmare, nobody, um, especially when you're grieving. No, nobody tells you about that. No, no, no one tells you about that. No one tells you about the paperwork. I couldn't believe it when my dad died. Can I ask what the death cafe is? Uh, the Death Cafe is an international movement which actually started in London, um, and it really just is an opportunity for people to come together and talk about death. They're very lightly facilitated conversations. Uh, prior to lockdown, I was running a quarterly program at Brompton Cemetery, where Rowan's buried, in the Visitors' Centre. 
obviously that um, that has gone online during the pandemic. Um, But people come with anything they want to bring to the table, anything related to death or grief or loss. And the conversation really depends on what people want to talk about. I I have a lot of facilitation experience professionally seemed like a, a good use of um, my professional skills to be able to hold that space and start the program. For me, it's been a really wonderful legacy of Rowan to be able to hold these spaces where people um, of all stages of grief or just curious, a lot of times they're just curious to talk about death, can come together and have a conversation. The topics of conversation range from anything from the administrative aspect of paperwork to writing wills to what do you do with your body. Um, A lot of times people come to death cafes wrestling with, should I uh, opt for burial versus cremation? We did quite a lot Um, of work with Macmillan, the cancer charity mm -hmm. last year. We did some events for them and some podcasts for them uh, when they had a program, which was we need to talk about death, in which they were trying to encourage people to just chat about it, either because they were you know, scared of it, or because it actually helps your family when you do die, if they have any idea what you would quite like for a funeral. And one of the women that we worked with quite closely on that, she had terminal lung cancer and she actually died during lockdown, um, which was terribly sad. But oddly, having talked to her so often about Sima, she was called Sima Thompson, having talked to her so often about about what her thoughts of death were. It made her death seem peaceful. Death is fascinating because it comes to us all, but yet none of us want to talk Mm. about it ever. Mm. Um, Mm. Karen, can I ask you how people like me, apart from uh, helping by not saying stupid things to people, how we can help you financially to make sure that there is someone to answer the phone? to people when they ring petals we've got a huge network of supporters and it's it's interesting i i I often talk about this as the petals family because i feel the service is one thing what we deliver obviously is really important is the the counseling service but what it brings along with it is this network of support because we find very much the couples that we provide the counseling for they they very often want to go on to give something back to us because it has meant so much to them. So they will raise money or give money and then their wider family will often do the same thing. To be honest, that's what's kept Petals going. It hasn't been easy to get NHS money. It hasn't been easy to get other grants and things like that to support our service. But whenever we ask you know, our supporters to help us, uh, whether it's to kind of go and, you know, run a marathon or (laughs) whether it's to hold a cake sale or, or anything the troops rally you know they really do and and the money comes in what i would say if anyone wants to support is is to come and get involved we have um, something called friends of petals on our website which you can just sign up for and say what it is that you might be able to provide petals with and you know that can also be to give us help in the offices or um, you know things like that sort of you know sort of more professional support the wider we can we can sort of broaden that network of people then the quicker we can grow it needs to be out there it needs to be a national service i think that it is not being provided in any other way other charities are doing things but they're not doing exactly what we're doing and the nhs whilst they provide support for mental health it is not as specialist and as tailored towards the needs of parents as as what we're doing and who knows what's coming for the NHS, to be honest. it's Well, yeah. It, it, it's literally everything is on a back, has been on a back burner, hasn't it? Because of, 
because of covid and yeah who knows where that yeah going. completely and and you know, the money where's the money i don't know <laughs> yeah. yeah it's the eternal question isn't it yeah thank you both so much for your time this has been really interesting and quite moving thank you for the work you're doing and for talking to us leah mm, my pleasure Standard Issue for All Women.